Chapter One. I am born. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. To begin my life with the beginning of my life, I record that I was born, as I have been informed and believe, on a Friday at twelve o'clock at night. It was remarked that the clock began to strike, and I began to cry simultaneously. Hi, this is Darian Bates, and this is Dr. Tobias Wilson Bates, and this is the stories we tell our robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology and how our technology makes us. Okay. Yeah. I uh, go on. <laughs> I was just thinking about this. I, I like to listen to audiobooks, and I was like, "Man, I, do you think I could have a career reading audiobooks?" Um, I, I like that. It's kind of every podcast we talk, you you explore other career options. <laughs> Desperate Things are going to escape. well at Georgia Tech. <laughs> um, this is, of course, uh, the opening of uh, Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. Um, with the very, very famous, at least within the field of literature, but uh, at least at some earlier point in, in the broader public, this question that he poses about whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life. Um, it's such an interesting thing to, to ask at the beginning of a novel named after the character who's asking that question. Um, <laughs> whether they're going to be the, their own hero of their self-titled fictional autobiography. Right. It's such an interesting sort of statement on on how narrative works in a lot of ways. But the reason I'm thinking about this in light of our podcast is actually because of an article I read the other day about Uber and Lyft and the way that each of these almost identical services is tied tightly uh, to their origin story. Uber being, uh, you know, uh, recently, recently employed CEO looking to take advantage of lemos to drive around town and Lyft being poor college students looking to kind of carpool home during the holidays. Um, mm. And how much these, these genesis stories, these origin stories, are, are vital to these almost identical companies in defining themselves. And I thought, you know, David Copperfield, the story where a character talks about the beginning of their own life and how they came to be who they are and whether or not they will be the hero of their own life, is such an interesting narrative parallel to think about uh, how a company does an origin story and what that means for the company. I like it. Well, welcome back, Toby. Is um, for uh, it's just the two of us. I feel like after a, a couple weeks of uh, allowing a a third person into our relationship. Yeah, let's get those um, experts out of here and get back to some hot takes. <laughs> exactly, hot take speculation. Yeah, get ready for forty five <laughs> minutes of total conjecture. Woo! <laughs> yes. Well, fortunately, fortunately, uh, we find ourselves on uh, at least at least somewhat familiar ground, uh, at least from, from, from my perspective. And it sounds like from your perspective as well. I assume you've actually read David Copperfield. I'm published um, on David Copperfield. Oh, snap. Yeah. Yeah. Go check out Dickens Studies, The Image of Time and David Copperfield. Do you have uh, do you have uh, issue and page? Oh, man. Man, what year was that published? <laughs> nice. Issue 47, I think, 2016 maybe. 
Nice, nice. So, so, so what we're telling you is we have there's we are credible experts, or at least you're a credible expert, and I'm a I'm a rank amateur. But having <laughs> having done a fair amount of work in um, actually helping organizations from the uh, kind of branding and marketing side uh, work on their origin story, and having started up um, two companies now at this point, both of which you inevitably end up in kind of this origin story discussion. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I love the origin story uh, talk. In fact, in fact, you know what? What? I think we should do more than one of these things. What? What do you say we do a series? I I, I am going to act like I'm surprised by this. <laughs> exactly, like we haven't planned this beforehand. <laughs> Mon dieu, a series. Yeah, yeah. What go, show go we on. call this? Right, exactly. Um, yes, yes. In fact, the other thing is if you listen to our last podcast, you also would have heard us <laughs> plug this series. So We, um, we don't expect you've listened to any of our work. <laughs> right. We assume that everyone is coming to here for the first time and probably the last time. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. But yeah, so this is the, the first of our Two Guys in a Garage series, uh, which is an exploration of uh, the narrative, the formative narratives in, uh, I guess, in, in tech culture. Is that, does, that, does that sum it up? Does that sound like what we're doing? Yeah, and I'm so interested because, and I'll talk a little bit about this with Dickens um, after a little bit of context, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the degree to which these narrative moments, the idea of how something came into being, um, is it, it, so essential for how these companies operate in the public, uh, but also mm-hmm. is such a clear version of how narrativity, how the activity of storytelling uh, is a sort of subject of focus for these companies that seem like they're just tech companies. Right, right. Well, I mean, let me jump in and provide kind of a little a little context here about sort of this this concept of the origin story. And and you know, I think for this particular one, let's start let's let's start um, our first part of the series really talking about kind of uh, beginnings, you know, genesis. Because um, there's a lot of elements to the way that the origin story and the way that the company narrative in general functions within, particularly within tech companies. Um, and I'll explain a little bit later why tech companies, the, the company narrative is so essential. Mm-hmm. Um, but really kind of this genesis story. Um, and there's, there's sort of three things that I want to kind of highlight about how these genesis stories uh, function. Um, and really, and there's there's kind of constant tropes that you see over and over again in tech companies in particular. I mean, the this the origin story in general for any company, um, I don't think that's new. Uh, I don't think tech companies invented that. Um, but I think there, I think tech companies have really defined some tropes that have become almost kind of essential to the tech company. Uh, maybe even more so than what I would think of as kind of. Like when you think about a steel industry company or a steel company kind of starting up, you're not going to hit some of the same notes that are now really common in the uh, tech yeah. company. So, and, and for me, just to, to put a, a, a brief bridge in here, because I, I find this maybe as a way that, that listeners can visualize this very clearly. For me, cell phones and sort of wireless headsets are such a great example of, of how this operates. When, when I was in college in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, cell phones were either for people who were trying to show off or for people who like didn't seem like they really understood that there was no reception anywhere and that landlines mm-hmm. worked better. 
Right. That like cell phones only work if there's massive uptake sort of simultaneously. And then further than that, people who wear wireless headsets and this kind of stuff look like crazy people in the early 2000s, like walking around right. just talking at the air, like actually mm-hmm. look like crazy people. Now that's incredibly normative. And and you can say on the one side is the tech has advanced, but on the other side it's just there has to be this cultural acceptance of these new norms right. uh, in a way that this gets picked up. And I think the story actually matters a lot for that. So, sorry, please keep going. Right, and actually I'd love to get to that. But let me start off with um, sort of some some kind of three tropes of um, kind of this startup story, these, these text narratives. One of which is kind of this... Um, kind of humble origins and it's not the humble origins of the people themselves so much as as like this born in a manger kind of story like Mm -hmm. so many tech startups have this kind of humble place of beginning um and the uh, the iconic one um that really i I think is one of the the seminal tech startup stories is hewlett-packard this uh palo alto um, California garage, and it's 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 Dave Packard's um, uh, parents' garage, um, where they they kind of got together. There were these these um, Bill Bill uh, Hewlett and Dave Packard um, went to Stanford uh, Stanford University together, uh, moved out to California, um, and kind of started building technology in this garage, which is now actually a private museum. Oh really? Um, yeah, it is. This it's and it's kind of this. It's considered to be sort of like a, a birthplace of Silicon Valley, a little bit. Um, and this idea that they, you know, they they were kind of plugging away in this garage, and they they actually started making audio oscillators, which was then used in the the um, the, the Disney film Fantasia. Hmm. Um, Right, and so and then then obviously the everything kind of steamrolls, and they build a factory nearby, and the next thing you know, then it all then they grow into a company making billions of dollars. But it all starts in this kind of humble um, garage space, mm-hmm. and that is um, that's such a common. You see that repeated over and over again. Like you see that repeated, you know, Steve Wozniak and uh, Steve Jobs, a garage. Right, that's the the story there. Um, and if it's not a garage, it's a dorm room. Or if it's not a dorm room, it's a um, you know somebody's basement. Right? There's it's the idea that this isn't happening in some sort of and, and this is really counter to like sort of the Bell Labs um, kind of Xerox, Kodak, like all these big um, kind of these earlier stage. Um, kind of industrial technology spaces where they're inventing, the garage is really the alternative to that, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about, like, if you think about corporate invention and then you think about personal invention, and the, the tech startup is really built around this personal invention, like a couple people, and that takes me to number two, which is kind of this idea of these destined founders. Um, and most of the time, it's kind of a couple. There's often, like, two. Um Sometimes, like, I think Facebook, you kind of have Zuckerberg as being this kind of single iconic character, although everyone knows that there were other people involved, you know, um, but there's still, he's kind of, he kind of rose out of that as this kind of single icon. Mm -hmm. Um, But in many cases, you have someone like Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, Bill Packard, uh, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, um, 
you know, kind of that that whole that whole set of group, that, uh, that whole kind of uh, duo. Um, and uh, Sergey Brin and bleh, for Google. I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> that guy's guy a real innovator. I, 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 I think right. to 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 intercede here a little bit, and part of what makes the garage so interesting as a space. Um, and and I want to lead into this by giving the full title of David Copperfield. Uh, mm, the Personal mm-hmm. History, Adventures, Experience, and Observation of David Copperfield the Younger of Blunderston Rookie, Rookery, parentheses, which he never meant to publish on any account, and parentheses. That's, that's actually the full title of the book. And I think what's mm. so interesting <laughs> about The Garage is, right, it's like this, this like messy, intimate, like, sort of, it's a middle-class space because who has a garage, but it's also, it's not a workshop, it's not an office, it's not a laboratory. It's the idea right. that, like, the there's this it, there's this it, it's personal but it's also in some ways like unprofessional and this kind of thing so right. that it it sits on this interesting boundary line of like oh well I never meant you to know that I was in a garage doing this right um, but now right. now <laughs> it can be a museum right right and the other thing about a garage that's really interesting and you touched on it just a little bit is the fact that it's it's so middle class mm-hmm. right. Right. It's this is if you think about if you think about like like late nineteenth century invention, none of that was happening in garages, right? If you think about the kind of the robber barons, like they weren't working out of garages. Um, you know, who knows what they were working out? I guess large factory floors or they were working out of, you know, back alleys where they were knifing people or whatever was going on <laughs> for the, there was, I mean, there was look, a shady. Look for our next podcast episode: <laughs> Steel Barons right, exactly. knife people in back alleys. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, I think the I think Carnegie uh, was particularly particularly um, kind of cutthroat. I think he started off in the the canals and everything, and I think he was particularly before he went into rail. And I think he was particularly cutthroat. Mm. Um, I think he was like a, a bare knuckle boxer at some point. I mean, the, so that's a, that's a very different culture. So when you think about the culture of garage startup or dorm room startup for that matter it's these are people that are going to college these are people who have garages they have single family homes or their parents do um and that's kind of an iconic part of of startup now is this Mm -hmm. idea that yeah they're all starting from humble beginnings except they all somehow have access to a garage um so the second point again was the the idea of these startups by the way larry page was the the other google founder (laughs) um but so often there's this these kind of there's this kind of match made in heaven predestination kind of thing it's often one person is more of the outgoing like business person the other is kind of the 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 quiet genius or the 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 crazy genius or whatever and the two of them work together to um kind of figure this whole thing out and there's something very um uh yeah, something predestined about it, almost the way that kind of like your one true love has this sort of like predestination quality to it when people talk about trying to find true love. Trying to find like your true founder mix is one of these these mythologies, and you're often talking about these these people who are who are perfectly connected or touched with a vision or something like that. Um, and the third thing is, is this concept of like a bolt of lightning. Mm-hmm. Right? They, you know, very few startup stories start with this concept of um well you know we were working on this thing and we needed to tweak it a little bit and we needed to tweak this a little bit and we went out and market 
fit tested it a little bit and we brought back and we really kind of worked this little angle here. <laughs> it's nothing about, there's nothing incremental about the startup story. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that that's often actually how people find kind of the ultimate fit. So often there's this bolt of lightning like, we were doing this and then boom, I saw this amazing thing and then it all, you know, fell into place and the next thing you know, everything kind of, um, it's like a big bang moment and everything just kind of like exploded into existence from that. Yeah, um, and, and I find, you, you made this really fascinating point uh, in the last podcast about how in the information age, technologies tend to need uh, both a channel and a format. So right, like the mm-hmm. internet being a channel and Twitter being a format. Um, and uh, part of what I find really interesting, and, and sorry, this is going to be a little bit of a wraparound, but bear with me for two seconds. Um, I'm, par- I'm strapped in. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to try to give you just an iota of, of Dickensian knowledge um, and wrap it back around to what we're talking about right now without going too, too into navel-gazing. So um, Charles Dickens... He, he hits the scene uh, in sort of London publishing with this, uh, with this thing called the Pickwick Papers. And what it is, is it's a series of illustrations with little kind of vignettes of modern life attached to it. And the reason it's getting written is because there's this really great illustrator. And then they just need to bring on anybody to write these little vignettes. And they get like a young Charles Dickens to do it. And then the mm-hmm. illustrator commits suicide, and the project almost dies, but they held on to it. And Dickens just hits gold. It's the it's the most famous. It's it's the most successful thing he writes in his lifetime. This thing called the Pickwick Papers, um, and part of what he discovers uh, in writing these things is that it, this is the format that that the channel is text, but the format is actually these little kind of three chapter pieces. Uh, that are that have pictures on either side that like this is the format that people really like to take information in it's the format that people are willing to pay like a kind of premium price point on but it's also cheap enough that pretty much anybody can afford to buy an issue at a time mm-hmm. and so really what what dickens does where he hits is he just figures out the right format for a channel that already exists he's essentially like this the uh, an information pioneer in this way and then in, mm. in David Copperfield, which is a thinly veiled autobiography of Dickens himself, um, he gets to create his origin myth as somebody who mm-hmm. kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps and, and created his own success. When in fact, it's like you were saying, every, all the conditions were already there. Someone just had to figure out that last piece. But then right. as soon as he figures out that piece, he then creates the story about how he created everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what's so interesting about that right there is the fact that the inscribing of this origin story is not a passive thing. It is not a, well, this happened and some scholars uh, 40 years from now looked back or, or I guess, uh, what is 19, what is 2018 minus 1939? Um, uh, let's just say 80 years. Um, <laughs> somewhere around there. Yeah, uh, 79. Sort of a, a, there you go. Um, look at that. I can do math and podcast at the yeah, same well time. Yeah, well done. Exactly. My calculus degree went to good purpose. <laughs> uh, no, not a degree. Class. <laughs> that's, that's how I work in my origin story. I got a degree in calculus. Yeah. Um, Hopefully David Kung's not listening. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, but, uh, you know, 
it's not like some scholars looking back 80 years from now and writing, you know, kind of in this 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 tome about this the this this, this the origin of this great company. Those stories are being inscribed as these companies are moving for specific purposes, mm-hmm. and I think that's the idea that these are these are not in many ways even factual, um, but certainly not disinterested. Mm-hmm. Um, they are they are stories that serve a specific purpose. So I think the other thing about the origin story is that it actually has um, beyond. It's not just vanity. It's not just like somebody trying to make themselves feel better or make themselves feel like they are their company is important or something or that they. It's not you know it's not even just PR. It's actually there's there's real specific function to the origin story. Um, and in some ways, existential purpose to the origin story. And so yeah. um, there's a couple of things that an origin story does, and there's a reason why you work on it um, and reason why people pay good money to work with people um, who are smarter than me um, to, to write really good origin stories, um, one of which is it helps you get funding. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of these startups, the myth of the startup is that you, you sit in a garage, you, cre- you invent something amazing, the world realizes how brilliant you are, and... Um, beats a path to your door. Um, in most cases, what's actually happening is, is a little bit of a, a back and forth between the idea and the resources to make that idea happen. Um, you know, I've, I've dealt with this before. I deal with this both in terms of with clients I've worked with and also on, on my own work. And you, you come up with something and you kind of write, this is what we think this is. And then you, um, you try to get some level of a, a proof of concept together, a minimum viable product together. And then you start shopping it to see what the fit is, um, you know, with potential clients and with potential investors. And you try to kind of, you try to make this whole thing sort of work in people's minds. But one of the major ways of getting people to do it is you inscribe this kind of first layer of origin story about what this thing is doing, who we are. And you're trying to create this energy of possibility, energy of potential. You're trying to write something in a way so that people can imagine your inv- the investors can imagine 10 years from now, they can imagine having read this origin story as something that did happen, right? You're, you're trying to write the inevitable success into the, um, into the initial kind of origin concept. Mm-hmm. And that's, how you, that's often how you get funding. Um, there are, especially seed stage funding happens can sometimes happen as, especially at some of the frothiest times, the term frothy is referred to when money is being thrown at things um, kind of quickly without a whole lot of uh, due diligence. Um, At the frothiest times in the market, uh, for kind of the VC market, money is sometimes being thrown at companies with basically a couple good founders and an idea and a good presentation deck. Mm -hmm. Um, So that origin story is, is essential for even getting the resources you need to start something. Which is great. It's, it's worth saying, not to just do this kind of parallel, parallel, parallel thing, but I, th- I find one of the things that's really fascinating. One of the things that Dickens did a lot, like during the Pickwick papers, is he tried to come up with all these different nicknames for himself, all these like <laughs> pseudonyms, like the Light of Albion and this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The one that he eventually stuck with was the inimitable Boz. Mm-hmm. And the people called Dickens Boz throughout his career because of this but um <laughs> i find this really funny you know that it, it's almost like a superhero name inimitable mm. <laughs> the inimitable boss <laughs> but it worked you know like it, it became the the way people kind of held him up as a as a certain kind of comparison against other forms of writing 
Mm-hmm. So, so the, the second function of this origin story is that it actually, if you picture what an early stage startup looks like, or even a middle stage startup, um, there's a couple things that are happening in it. One, there's a lot of opinions. There's mm-hmm. a lot of soups in the kitchen, ultimately, um, especially with investors, many of whom think they know how companies succeed and fail. Yeah. Um, and there's very little revenue. So there's very little um, market feedback yet that's telling you this is working or this isn't working. In mm-hmm. many cases, you're, um, you're either pre-revenue or you're early stage. You have beta users, which are early users that are using your product that isn't quite finished yet. Um, and so even figuring out whether something is going in the right direction or not is essentially a jump ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and the story is then used to define decisions more so than any kind of because you don't have revenue numbers coming back and you're like well we added we added you know 600 new you know new accounts and this much revenue in many cases you're not it the the spark hasn't really lit yet and so you're you're having to make decisions without getting kind of that market feedback that a more mature company would be using and so your origin story is essentially your way of convincing all these cooks that are in the kitchen to make a decision one way over another. And if you're a really good origin story writer, um, as many of as many fa- sort of successful tech founders are, they're sometimes instinctive origin story writers, but they are often um, they're often good at inscribing like this is what's happening right now. This is the narrative that's going on right now. So yeah. this is where we should go. Right, and so it, it actually the origin story starts serving a very specific function of keeping all your people, all your investors, and all the decision makers, all sort of in your flow and where you wanted to go. Um, and then it's also it's also the same thing that is starting to build um, adoption for your ideas out in the market. And this is where we get to this thing, kind of the cell phone conversation that you're talking about. Origin stories are essential in tech because you're trying to, in many cases, you're trying to create a market for something that doesn't exist yet mm-hmm. right if you th- if you think about the steel industry you probably don't need a really strong origin story in the steel industry because people just need to build strong things yeah right like you don't need to convince people that well if you start using steel other people are going to start you know building things on top of that steel right i mean the the tech world is so often built on idea and information and concept and so the story actually has huge value, particularly for kind of this early adopter space where you need to get people to start using it so then other people will jump in and then other people will invest in it and then you'll get enough money to be able to. So yada, 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 right? You're yeah. creating kind of a whole universe that people can believe in so that then the whole thing can actually exist. And, and, I, so and the I origin wanna, story functions there. And I want to pin this too. So I, I hope our listeners are not thinking that I'm, I'm doing like random navel-gazing, choosing Charles Dickens uh, to talk about here. Because I actually mm-hmm. think that there's a direct genealogy here. So part of what Dickens does in structuring the way his career works, like Dickens ended up being wildly rich by, by the end of his life. And the way he did that, because he, he did come from humble means, not as humble as he might have wanted people to believe, like, um, but... At, at, at a point in his life, his family did send him off to work in a factory as a child to make money for the family. Like that, he, he did, his family did fall that low, although his family did right. have to fall a bit. It wasn't like his family were already that poor. They got that poor and they went to debtor's prison and this sort of stuff, which he talks about in David Copperfield. But um, the thing that Dickens ultimately does that makes him so successful, and the reason that 
people still think about Dickens a lot and why you see things like Christmas Carol very much or Oliver Twist very much in the public consciousness is because he was actually amazing at branding. He was was hmm. he was not the best writer of his era. But I mean, what is that? What does it mean to be the best writer? I I think uh, well this is I, I mean obviously you can you can say a lot of different things but in terms of taking on the most complex problems in the most compelling ways um, mm. engaging in complex conversations in a way that transcends the complexity of those conversations and be, makes it accessible to the public maybe that it, definitely makes a New York Times bestseller right there yeah exactly right I mean like if you look at the number of complex things happening in Harry Potter. The number of really <laughs> interesting things happening in Lord of the Rings, right? Like these, like these are people who do are doing really difficult conceptual work and then delivering it to the public in a way that the public right. can embrace. That right. that is really good writing. It it, it's, mm-hmm. it puts its foot on either side of like a complex and a, a publicly accessible form of prose. Mm-hmm. Um, Dickens wasn't the best at that. <laughs> hmm. uh, he, what he was eventually is he was a great editor who had a really good sense of doing this thing that you're talking about in terms of creating this kind of conceptual universe. His most successful editorial project was uh, a, a serial called Household Words. Hmm. And it was his idea that he could create this sort of uh, journal, kind of newspaper journal type thing that would incorporate all these great writers, and he brings in real amazing talent, people like George Eliot, um, to publish in these spaces, but he also brings in all these really, this really interesting talent of people who worked recently in public works and are talking about like sewage maintenance and this kind of stuff. And he builds this sort of like the idea of the home space. Um, mm-hmm. And then he often makes himself the headliner of that. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so that something like Christmas Carol inf- is, is, it's almost like a like Pixar, where everything sort of comes out of this universe of like comfortable right. bourgeois value that you can interact with. Mm. Um, so anyway, this is, a, this is a long way to say, I actually think this sets up the conditions for things like tech companies now that are also interested in participating in that same like a complex informational cultural uptake of everybody being willing to have a cell phone now. Like Steve Jobs' presentation of the cell phone where he kind of is making this joke about, I'm going to present to you an iPod, a mobile internet device, and a revolutionary phone. These are one object. You know, like this idea that the, the circle has closed and we're home, you know? Right, right. And and you're right. I think a lot of you know tech companies more than almost any other company, particularly um, consumer tech companies, consumer product tech companies, um, are really trying to build a cultural um, movement, not just a not just a product, which makes it really hard to do. And makes but makes the the kind of the self mythologizing really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like in the same way that Dickens was essentially creating a self mythology for his for his both his own writing and his whatever ventures he was involved in, kind of literary ventures he was involved in, to kind of have a built in home that was kind of ideologically inclined towards what he would bring out to them. Dickens would, uh, introduced towards the end of his life, he went through all of his personal correspondence that he had saved and he destroyed mm-hmm. everything 
that didn't fit mm. the narrative he wanted. So that how interesting. And he See, I'd always out... heard that he had destroyed everything, but you're saying that nope. he actually he actually called he he called it down to only the correspondence that uh, confirmed his particular story. Yeah, and and he picked his biographer, this guy Forrester, who was a friend of his, um, who he he told David Copperfield is essentially an autobiography of me. Because people already loved mm-hmm. David Copperfield as a brand, and there's all these interesting ways in which it's not the same as Dickens, but there's all these ways in which it is exactly the same story of his life. So, right, he was he was really interested in not just present, producing this kind of empire within his own life, but also in, like, his legacy afterwards. Right. Well, and what's really interesting is that Dickens, I mean, for, for, for anybody who pays attention to the, uh, the literary Mount Rushmore conversation... Um, all, all six of them. The, um, I mean, Dickens is on there at least from a from a British literature, right? It's it's you could say Shakespeare, Dickens, and two others who you could name. Yeah, Milton, and I mean, and at that point, it gets pretty. You get you get into some pretty murky waters about who exactly you want to say is else. But right. yeah, Dickens, Shakespeare, Milton, I think are the the simple picks. Right, right. And then there's a fourth that gets thrown on there, like Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt just shows up and charges up the hill. Gets, right. He's like, I'm getting on that mountain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, it's interesting because the, the one other thing that I think really makes Copperfield really relevant here is, and I, this is kind of a bonus little throw in here in terms of the tropes in these stories, is that um, metaphorically speaking, so many of these stories, the tech startup stories, are, are orphan stories. Mm-hmm. Are, are stories of of people that are not that are that are born of no man or woman, um, that their ideas are sui generis, sui, sui generis. Yeah, the, good uh, use of the term. And term? we're saying David yes. Copperfield is also an orphan story. Just right, to, exactly. That's, to show how much how much this is. A, yeah, this is a kind of closed loop. This is ex- this is exactly how these Genesis narratives operate. Right. So, like, if you think about it, it's. And and we, I think we're now fairly aware of how false some of these, um, you know, kind of these these origin these tech origin stories are when it comes to like, yeah, we just came up with this, we just invented this, and in most cases the work is far more derivative than they want to give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's a real function to there's a real function to that mythology of this thing is born an orphan. You know, I, I think the, the the famous one is sort of um, Steve Jobs and and um, kind of inventing essentially what is now the PC, uh, Windows, the mouse, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I think we now Malcolm Gladwell wrote an article a while back, really puncturing that a bit and really highlighting the fact that really the mouse and Windows were essentially two Xerox Corporation inventions that Steve Jobs sort of poached and poached. There's been it's been framed in different ways. Sometimes it's framed as like less ethically poached. Sometimes he actually there was, you know, Xerox might have been an investor in them. I I I didn't spend enough time to really figure out the accuracy of that. And you know, go read the internet if you want to figure that one out. <laughs> but but what is true is the fact that Windows and the mouse, two of the biggest inventions of the interface dynamic, where you no longer had to type into DOS or a command line interface, but where you could, where an average person who didn't have to learn the semantics of essentially code language to use a PC could start accessing it. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the one of the idea that this was born in 
Steve Jobs' mind somehow. Um, it was essential for that story, I think, early on, and the way that Apple kind of sold itself, um, including that famous like 1984 reference ad that really introduced the Mac onto the marketplace. Yeah. Um, you know that that was somehow not beholden to any of these other big companies that are out there. It was really essential to say this is new, um, and the idea that tech that tech companies to this day are still new and fresh and different and not beholden to some other company that came before and to all the old rules that you know made kind of the old world so outdated and they're going to invent something new and bring something new to the market is still fairly essential even when i think we're now all fairly aware that um most tech companies are essentially getting um are all being funded by other in industry leaders or prior tech giants who are now running you know, incubators and VC firms and things like that. Um, I think one of my favorite examples of this is uh, is Tinder. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is one. Of, it's one of my favorite um, kind of the, the 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 truth versus the myth stories, where the the myth of Tinder is essentially that Sean Rad and Justin Mateen, these guys, just two guys in a USC dorm room who who wanted to go out and meet people, and they're kind of using kind of the Greek fraternity world of USC, which. Yeah, you can only imagine what that's like in Southern <laughs> California. Um, kind of are out there, like, yeah, they, they, they really wanted to figure this whole thing out. Uh, the reality is, is that they may not, they were just part of a um, IAC incubator, which is primarily, which is basically funded by Match.com. So it's like such an out, like Match.com is such an older version of Tinder. Mm -hmm. And Match.com's strategy was essentially to, you know, graduate people up, for, young people up from Tinder into Match.com after they've, assume have sowed their oh, wild that's oats. so interesting and, and there was even a female founder uh who was um i think i, I think sh let's say justin's um girlfriend who eventually sued the company for sexual harassment <laughs> oh god like, but she's like left out of the origin story and you can still go out to like you know when you google tinder's origin story or something like that you can still go find this kind of uncorrected version of this startup story um, and the reality is that these guys were essentially two guys um, playing founder under a lot of funding that was coming from a company that was looking at this as essentially a down market strategy or a, a youth oriented strategy. Um, so, but they still needed this idea of the hip people are out on Tinder, the hip young people are out on Tinder. This is not your parents' dating app. This is something fresh that's coming out of kind of the USC dating scene. Um, I might have I might have speculated on a couple of those points. So um, <laughs> yeah, um, look yeah, look go. for future retractions. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think what, or what's so fascinating about um, this is, and and why I think this is a useful case. If if you want to know how durable this the strategy is, uh, just look at how people think about Charles Dickens right now. You know. Right. Like right. he he's still thought of in this beloved sort of grandfatherly you know pipe and mouth next to a warm fireplace style kind of cultural right. phenomena. Um, right. I mean, Victorian literature was was a very rich period of time, right? Like, wasn't that when the publishing industry sort of blew up into like this, um, maybe as big as it ever had been and ever would be? I mean, yeah, wasn't, wasn't kind of. And it's worth saying, like, and, and this is one reason I made this point earlier that Dickens is not the best writer of his era. Um, and I also want to uh, modify what we're saying about the sort of English writing Mount Rushmore. You, the 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 novel, which was the the premier form in the 19th century, was mostly being published by women, and women were doing incredible novels. 
So mm. you could you could toss that Mount Mount Rushmore and make another one out of like Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte I was about to and say, George Eliot. I'm glad that I I'm glad that I left Jane Austen off the uh, the Mount Rushmore for. Um, we're gonna get letters for that one. <laughs> no, but I think that's Dad, exactly right. Starting like I, with, <laughs> if Mount Rushmore is supposed to be this sort of the male order of mm-hmm. like the the sort of the lions of national discourse, that actually obscures the fact that like a lot of the better, more interesting, more intricate work was being done by these brilliant women. That's, uh, a, that's a great point, and it showcases my own personal bias. <laughs> Not even that I prefer. Apparently, that when I think of Mount Rushmore, I can only think of men. Well, because that's what Mount Rushmore is. Like, let's go rape nature with a bunch of man faces. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So so I think one of these things about the origin story, I mean, so there's a huge power in it, right? There's this Mm -hmm. immense, what I think of as the origin stories as these big bang moments. And I think it's, I think it can't be, it cannot be overstated how much of a miracle all these companies are. So even as I'm sort of like scoffing a little bit at their origin stories, um, partially because, you know, it's, it's you know, um, game recognizes game. Um, <laughs> no, but as I'm looking at these kind of somewhat sometimes contrived, massaged origin stories, um, you can't overlook the fact that the companies that succeeded, who go back and write their kind of heroics into the annals of history, since they are the victors, they are they are modern miracles. There are so many things that are people that are going after this and trying to achieve this, and there's so few that achieve it. Yeah. Um, but I, I listened to a Radiolab podcast the other day about finding a match in a bone marrow transplant, mm-hmm. and there's this there's this guy. I, I won't go into the episode, but the the repeating line is like, "It's a one in a million chance that I'd find a perfect match." And they have a statistician come on, and they're like. Well, I mean, that you and you would be a match is a one in a million right. chance. But in terms of you finding a match, it's m- almost a one in one chance. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that. And I, I think about this in terms of the danger of origin stories. It's amazing. The, the kinds of things that Dickens produced are amazing. But the fact that there is a Dickens is right. it was almost certain to happen because there was so much money and there was so much pressure and there were so many people trying to do that thing. The chance of someone right. doing that was almost a certainty. Right. This reminds me of the uh, when we when we get on the phone and talk basketball, your your point about volume scores that every team has to score 20 points from somebody. Yeah. I mean, every every basketball team at the end of the game happens to score somewhere between 80 and 110 points. So there's going to be a 20-point score, and they're not always going to be that good. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And it's very deceptive. I, I Like, whenever I look at Dwight Howard's stat lines, <laughs> I'm like, right. when you're that big and that tall, you're going to catch rebounds. Right. Well, we have just managed to talk tech startup Charles Dickens and Dwight Howard at the same time. So and when that happens, I, th- I think it's time to ask. Well, uh, no, 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 no. I don't think no, we're quite ready. No, no, oh, 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 sorry, no, no, sorry. No, no, hold no, it no, off, no, hold no, it no. off. <laughs> cut yeah, this, cut it. this. Because <laughs> I think it's an important thing to say um, that there's immense power to these stories that however however backwards looking they are and however re-inscribed they are to, to um, validate the... Um, the where these founders are and where the companies now are, they are, these companies are still, it's still fairly miraculous that these companies kind of came together and these particular people achieved this and all that. And the origins and the origin story, um, you know, kind of supports that. 
but they also can constrain and they also can limit you. And I think, you know, we're going to tread onto a little um, thin ice here, I suppose. Um, not that our podcast on race last week didn't. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you think about the origin story of the Constitution, and you brought this up um, before the, you know, as we were just talking a little bit before we started recording, that, you know, the Constitution has an origin story to it. America has an origin story to it. And the idea of kind of this, 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 you know, group of colonists that band together and kind of grab their rifles from under the bed and get together and go off in this Minuteman kind of thing, um, that's a still that's a still a strongly binding principle to why the Second Amendment is so um, important in kind of the psyche, this American psyche. It's like this somehow, um, and however much you can argue about what the Second Amendment is really trying to say or not trying to say, the idea of the ability for the populace to kind of be empowered in a sometimes militant way is is inscribed in our origin story. And there is this binding limitation to these origin stories as well as there is this immense power to them. And I think I think that is where I would love to raise the prospect of apocalypse or utopia. All right. Do you want to do you want to kick us off? I don't uh, that 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 seems like a, a pretty dark entrance into our, <laughs> into our question. <laughs> well, well. So my my point about apocalypse utopia in this case is our origin stories. These kind our tech origin stories, and as tech becomes as these tech companies start becoming the, I mean, re, I mean not just start becoming as they are, our major industries at this point like Google, Facebook, Apple. Microsoft, um, bleh, bleh, Amazon. Um, <laughs> that one keeps on showing up today. I know. Well, I think I'm gonna start making that my thing. I um, like it. I like it. It's a good tagline. I don't think anyone's taken it. <laughs> exactly. Stories to tell our robots. Smart discourse and bling. <laughs> um. um but as the, I mean, these are these are so much of what's driving our, um, it's kind of our, our country at this point, and their origin stories really help them get there, and they're still guiding them along the way, but they're also still constraining them. Um, and I guess is the existence of the origin story, and is the power of the origin story, and the maybe the innate power of the origin story, and the way that is being used. To magnify the the kind of validity of these companies, um, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? That was a lot of subclauses. That's a, let's yeah, just say yeah, origin well, stories, apocalypse or utopia. Right. <laughs> origin story. Well, I mean, you know, I feel like we need to understand what it means for for an origin story to be something. Not that we haven't spent the last forty five minutes <laughs> talking about that. Don't worry, no one's learned anything. <laughs> well, I, I try as hard as I can to stop them from doing so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, origin stories, as so much of this is, you know, are kind of double-edged swords, um, so much of kind of these, these, these elements in, this, in the technology world. But, you know, I'm going to have to go with, I'm, I'm going to have to... to you know, speak for my my people on this one. Having been a 
a, a, an interested inscriber of origin stories. Uh, you know, I have to say, I think they are... I think they are kind of incredibly powerful forces for good. I think... <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> good? Question mark? Um, no, good. I think they... I think a hollow origin story gets found out. Hmm. I think I think people figure out ultimately, even if they're not true technically speaking, they are true um, uh, conceptually. And and a dissonance between the origin story and the actual company at some point starts creating a sense of hypocrisy. Um, and I think it was you that told me one time that the um, I think it was actually a, prof- a professor that you had when you, you when you were getting your master's at University of Pittsburgh said that um, when he was being called out, I think he was a, a bit of a Marxist and he was being called out by a student in the class as I'm telling your story. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. Um, right, um, and I and I you know someone called him on hypocrisy for if he's a Marxist, why is he doing X, Y, and Z, and doesn't that make him a hypocrite? And I think his response was, "Well, you have when you have some when you have an ideology, you have two options: either to be a hypocrite or a fascist." Hmm. Um, um, do you remember the story? I might oh, have yeah. made this up at yeah. that point. No, this is Timothy Morton, and you can any, anybody can look him up. He he does really interesting sort of provocative thought experiments along these lines about the value of being a hypocrite. Um, gotcha. Because n- right. the, nobody can be like ideologically pure, uh, right. so we're all inevitably hypocrites. And accepting that and moving from that basic standpoint is a way to be ethical in a complex world. Right. Is that is that University of Pittsburgh? Was I right at that? No, that's California. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry, Tim. Um, so, so the other thing is that hypocrisy is. Um, There's kind of that famous idiom that uh, hypocrisy is vice's tribute to virtue. Hmm. The idea that um, that by creating these origin stories, you have to write an origin story that has a value to it that people like, that people want, that people be- can believe in. And if you start deviating from, and that origin story has a real power to keep companies honest to a certain degree, um, you know, by Facebook having this origin story of connecting people in a in some sort of implied virtuous way, or why by Google having this kind of origin story and this kind of mission of saying don't be evil, um, however much they start to deviate from that, that's still kind of a fulcrum by which you can force these companies back into alignment because these companies are often underneath all their massive technology and infrastructure they are in fact ideas and the origin story as a public expression of their values and their direction and their ideas is a way that they are held to account i think i think in a way that if you picture the industries that don't have origin stories um you know, like, like arms manufacturers tend not to have really <laughs> compelling origin stories, right? They don't really, nobody really wants to know their arms manufacturing, arms manufacturer origin story. I mean, maybe Smith & Wesson, I think, the, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the kind of retail gun manufacturers. But when you're really thinking of like, like Blackwater, you know, Blackwater private security forces doesn't have a really compelling origin story. Um, and, and as a result, they're not particularly movable by it. Um, so I think, I think the idea that these tech companies the origin story serves as not only a, a formative hypothesis for their existence, but actually an active um, 
engine for their growth and direction also makes it possible um, for them to have to adhere to some level of the principles that are publicly acceptable. So that's my long way of saying, I think origin stories, given going to give them an eight. Um, oh wow! All right. Yeah, I think I think it I think it keeps us honest. I, it also keeps me in business when <laughs> companies ask me about origin stories. Yeah, I think I'd give it like a four. Like, oh. I I just but it made feel... it made Dickens so famous. Well, and and that's a problem. Um, <laughs> I think because. People read Dickens and they don't read. They don't assign George Eliot, right? Like mm-hmm. that. That, mm-hmm. and it's not because of length. You sound like, you sound like that guy in the the record store who's like the Beatles are overrated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean I love the Beatles, so I I, I refuse that. But <laughs> but I I think that for me anyway, and this might just be a little bit of cynicism. I actually feel like the gravity works the other way. So that Fox calls themselves fair and balanced or Disney calls itself, like, good for the family. I mean, I, I listened to, I was listening to the soundtrack of Jungle Book again the other day, and I was like, holy hell. Like, if you go back and <laughs> listen to, like, Dumbo or the Jungle Book or these things, you're like, this is the most racist thing I've ever heard. Wow, well, it, it was a simpler time. I, I, um, but I, <laughs> Back when people could be racist. <laughs> I think there's actually a really troubling gravity in the other direction in terms mm. of that, that origin story can be used as this Im- immense gravity. These, these companies aren't really accountable to the public. And there's a weird way in which simply saying over and over again, like, this is fair and balanced, or this is this is good literature or this is like family values or whatever actually warps rather than being accountable to the public. It actually warps the way the public thinks about a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in some ways I think origin stories can be so, so dangerous because like a generation is growing up thinking of Steve Jobs as a great version of what a CEO should do and be like when Mm. by all accounts, Mm -hmm. he was kind of this uh, like, unstoppable fascist in terms of some of his actual policies and the way that he ran right. his organization. And, and, and so it, it's something like Michael Jordan looking like that's the athlete you should be like because the be like Mike or like these, you know, these, these narratives that are sold actually warped people in the other direction of starting to accept things sort of as a sort of back formation from the thing that they've now taken to be true rather than holding the company to account for those things. Right. And there's certainly kind of a survivorship bias in Mm -hmm. all of this where we we look at those that are successful and then we ascribe to them and and then we we take the values that they they, they lay claim to and then ascribe to them kind of these these other values that maybe they, um, you know, may have nothing to do with their success, but we then start making that kind of our um, yeah. our archetypal kind of success story and say, you should follow this. Um, you should kind of follow in these footsteps, um, which I think is really interesting. You know, I, I will say that um, having started a couple companies, y- you personally are all, 
you can't help but on a daily basis, especially in the early times when it's really tough, you can't help kind of personally writing your origin story to yourself. You're almost you're almost imagining the articles that are going to be written about you when you're successful, and this is what this is what you're going to say. The the latest thing that's tough in front of you, you say, ah, that's this is what that was. This was that moment, and we'll yeah. we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, in, a, in our next episode. Right. So the next episode, two guys in a garage. Um, the fall. The, the 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 essential myth of failure mm-hmm. in in uh, kind of the tech startup narrative, um, and I think it's it's both uh, essential and mythological. Yes, I hope that our podcast won't fail. Nice, nice, well done. <laughs> <laughs> you really landed that one. You're really taking us out on this big moment. <laughs> All right. All right. All right, I'll talk to you. Uh, talk to you next week. See you next week. All right, love you. Love you too, ma'am. Bye. Bye.